0: you're listening to choose fi radio the blueprint for financial independence lives here if you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement you're in the right place Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online.
1: the Choose a I radio podcast. Today on the show, we are going to try something that we have never done before. And frankly, I don't think has ever been done before in the space of the financial independence community. And that is a live case study. And to help us with this, I have not only my co-host Brad, but I have Allison Goddard, a physician out of Tennessee and physician on fire. And we are going to be exploring Allison's story at the granular level, looking at the numbers, looking at her path to both starting her financial freedom clock and now from ground zero, her path to financial independence. Brad, this is going to be an awesome conversation.
2: Yeah, it really is. I mean, this should be fantastic. First, Allison reached out to us with her information and it just sounded like this fascinating case story to do for one of our podcast episodes. And then we in turn reached out to physician on fire to see if he'd like to come on and join us because it would just add that extra flavor. So POF, I wanted to throw it over to you and thank you for being here.
3: Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm honored that you chose to uh, include me in today's episode. And there really is a lot here to uh, dig into in uh, Dr. Goddard's story here. And I'm excited to go through all of the various issues that she uh, is dealing with right now. And um, just want to say hello to Dr. Goddard. Can we call you Allison? Please do. We will. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Oh, man, this was like the most epic intro ever. We had to go through me, then through Brad, then through Positional on fire. <laughs> but it's so much better for it. And frankly, you're at the center of this. I mean, what was amazing to me was when you initially sent us your letter saying, hey, I am a high income earner, but I'm getting started really late and I'm paying off in debt. I got a follow-up email just before we were about to record saying, oh, by the way, I just finished paying it off. Your financial freedom clock has started. That is incredible. How does it feel?
4: Oh my gosh, I feel so amazing. This humongous weight is lifted off my shoulders. And I I just go through my workday even happier knowing that at least that part is gone and I can start from zero.
1: Now we're at zero now, but let's go back to the beginning of this story. How did medicine come on your radar? Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor or was this a decision that you made a little bit later on?
4: It was definitely made later on. As I mentioned in the email, I worked as a surgical assistant for about 10 years before I decided to go to medical school. So I was already in the business of like taking care of patients, and I really liked that. It's just that I had such a low hourly wage that I knew I'd be living paycheck to paycheck but at the same time like I was never a good student in high school and I think I just didn't have the direction I didn't come from parents who were like you know high career people and so I did also didn't have the influence from home and so it took me some time of working around physicians and like seeing how their lives were different to make me kind of decide to step up and do something more with my life
2: Allison, how rare is that for someone to go from a surgical assistant to medical school and ultimately become an MD?
4: I don't know, but I think it's pretty rare, and I think that I really lucked out because I had these amazing mentors. Like, I worked in an academic practice, and so they were already used to, like, mentoring residents and medical students, and they saw something in me that I never could have seen in myself, and so they always said, you know, like, you're just, you are wasting your time. Like, you have got to go back to school. You have so much more potential um, that we really believe in you, and so we're going to, like, push you until you go to school.
2: Wow. That's amazing. Do you have any sense of the interactions you'd have with them? Were these friends and and close colleagues that, that, I mean, that's a pretty unusual thing for them to step forward and, and really go out of their way like that.
4: Yeah. You know, they were kind of older physicians and I just worked closely with them and I worked very hard for them. And I think honestly, they were so used to people kind of in that job description in that pay range of, kind of just working for the paycheck kind of clocking in clocking out and not feeling really passionate about what they're doing and they saw that in me and I think that's where like we would have lunch meetings they would like what's going on in your life what's your plan with school they were so encouraging like I just have them I have so much I'm so thankful for you know every bit of like confidence they had and they shared with me and like pushed me on my way
1: So I want to talk this through. So it wasn't just that you decided to go to med school. I mean, when they pushed you, did you, did you go straight into med school or did you have to go back and do some additional work for undergrad?
4: So, yeah, I hadn't started my undergrad yet. And so actually one of those physicians said, if you promise me, you will just take one semester at the, there's a Harvard extension school, which is kind of like the nighttime school for Harvard. He's like, I will pay your first semester. I just want to see you get into it and see where it goes from there. And so that's where I started. And then I ended up finally realizing how much I loved it as a college student when I didn't love high school, like I said. So I was doing really well and surprising myself, making straight A's and like never had done that before in my life and like wanting to learn more. And so then I just kept working full time and I went to school at night and would arrange my schedule for the day classes, labs I had to take. And I got done in three years, at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, which was, you know, not an expensive school, something that I feel like I could keep my loan somewhat low and still work around work a full time work schedule.
1: Positional fire. Do you have chills down your spine right now?
3: Yeah, I was saying that's incredible. You you went from uh, uh, basically just a job out of high school at eighteen to starting night classes uh, through Harvard, uh, just like that. Finished college in three years and uh, obviously matriculated to medical school after that. That is an unusual story. Uh, it's not that uncommon for someone who is, say, pre-med to begin with to have a job in the medical field just to be around doctors and see what's happening. But, but that wasn't you. You weren't pre-med. You were simply a surgical assistant. What, what you were able to do and what other people saw in you is pretty incredible. So congratulations.
4: And also all through undergrad, I didn't have medical school on my radar. The doctors I worked for were actually oral surgeons. So they were dentists and medical doctors. And they were always pushing me towards dental school. And I just didn't feel that in me. And so I thought, well, maybe nursing. Like I just didn't see myself as a doctor because, you know, doctors just seem like on this whole different tier than me. Um, so I actually, after I graduated, I spent a year in Ecuador volunteering. I ended up volunteering for a group of surgeons who um, had this mobile surgery unit. We just kind of went around to rural areas and helped local hospitals. And that is where I was like, I need to do this. I'm making changes in people's lives and I am going to go back and go to medical school.
3: That's super cool. I've done one week of volunteering in uh, in Central America and on a very rewarding one year. That's incredible. so good for you for having done that.
1: But going to medical school, that's not just like an overnight decision in and of itself. I mean, once you decide that that is your course, this is not even a four-year path. I mean, this this is like, you've now dictated out what your next, I don't know, eight plus years of your life. How how old were you when you got into medical school?
4: I was 28 and it was actually pretty fast for me because one of the physicians I work for had this house on this Island called Saba in the Netherlands Antilles. And there's, you've heard of these like Caribbean medical schools. There's a school there. And so he had always told me a lot of students there, this is like a second career kind of non-traditional medical students. And so he said, why don't you just apply there and at least you can get it started? I hadn't taken the MCAT or anything. And so I applied, it was a $50 application and I had taken the dental school aptitude tests, which are similar to like the MCAT for medical school. And I had done really well on those, but decided I didn't want to go to dental school Well, so I gave them those scores and then my transcripts from undergrad and like three weeks later, I got a letter in the mail that I was accepted and I would start medical school in January. So it was definitely different. Like it started the ball, once the ball got rolling, it like went really fast and I thought I would just go to this Caribbean school for a semester, make sure I could really make it happen and I wouldn't completely fail out and instead, like, I just excelled and then so I just kept going there.
3: Wow. And you didn't consider any other medical school. Did you ever take the MCAT or I guess you didn't need to, huh?
4: I didn't take the MCAT. And so I really thought, well, maybe I should come back to the U.S., take the MCAT and then apply to U.S. schools because I didn't know what would happen with this. Kind of stigma of these Caribbean schools, but once you're in it, and I already had, you know, my first semester of medical school debt, and I had all those like first semester hard classes out of the way. I just thought mm-hmm. it's going to delay me another two years if I come back to the U.S., take the MCAT, apply to medical schools in the U.S., and I just wasn't willing to wait any longer.
3: You already had that late start, and that makes perfect sense,
2: Allison. I'm curious. You've mentioned a couple times just in the last five or ten minutes. What reminds me of limiting beliefs, who am I basically like I'm a surgical assistant and could I really make it, could I really do it? You said that just about the medical school. I'm going to go down there and see if I'm going to flunk out. That's a very interesting mentality. And obviously you overcame that. I'm curious at what point you said, Hey, I'm legit. This is my path. This is my calling.
4: It happened because I'm stubborn, honestly. I also didn't have that confidence in myself for sure. So luckily for me, someone else did. But there were multiple semesters of me being not only straight A's, but the top of my class for me. And I kept thinking like, I am fooling them, like, how is this happening, like, when is the ball going to drop, and then this is all going to be over for me because I was never a good student before, and, you know, of course, by the end of it, I was number one in my class, I was like, okay, I get it that if I work hard, then I'm going to do well. It has nothing to do with me being smarter than anyone else. I was just so driven at that point and I was paying for it myself. And I like had no other interest. My medical school colleagues were out partying on the other islands on the weekends, you know, and going home for every break. And I just stayed and studied.
2: Wow. You talk about an actionable tip. We're always looking for those gems for the audience. I hope everybody goes back and listens to that last minute. I just outworked them is what you said that's the difference between failure and success in life. Huge kudos to you. That's really remarkable.
1: So we've talked about the fact that you started school and you started school in the Caribbean, which I actually did not realize until we are talking about it right now, which is amazing. And on top of that, you're starting at the age of 28. So I guess I'm curious now, I'm curious, is this a traditional four-year med school program and how much does school cost? I mean, how much debt are we incurring and are you able to get scholarships?
4: It is a traditional four-year medical school, although it's structured a little bit differently that the first two years, which are your basic science years in medical school, basically you're just sitting in a classroom and learning all of the sciences behind medicine. And then the second two years, you're doing what are called clinicals, where you're working in hospitals as a medical student in different specialties to learn about the practice of medicine. And my medical school, it was trimesters. And so you would go for four months and then you would have a two week break and then you would keep going. So it was like a year round. So I did get done in about three and a half years just because of their structure that way.
1: Okay. Yes. I guess my question is how does this work with student loans? Like here in the United States, the government will throw money at you, virtually unlimited amounts of money at you to go to your medical school of choice. There's been some news articles recently of people in dental school acquiring close to a million dollars in student loan debt. How much did your school cost? And are you able to get this as public loans since it's in the Caribbean?
4: We were not able to get public loans, so all of my loans were private. And the private companies that would offer loans to our particular school changed regularly. If not every semester, at least every other semester, they would say, well, now it's a new bank that you can get your loans with. So I had multiple different banks that I had loans with. I don't remember my exact tuition, but I remember the average for each semester, which remember we had trimesters were around 25000 and that would cover my tuition as well as my living expenses. You could definitely take out more than that, but that was kind of the minimum that I was living on. I don't remember how much of that was tuition. I would think it was somewhere between fifty and seventy five thousand per year tuition if you kind of bundle it together
3: that is not cheap i went to a uh, us uh, public university and i think when i started tuition was under 10000 a year it may have been 15 or so by the time i was a fourth year back in 2002 and we also had the benefit of the public uh, federal loans so yeah, you really did come out with, uh, even though you got it done in three and a half years, I'm sure a pretty sizable debt. How big was your debt burden altogether?
4: It was 270000 but that also included my undergrad. I think my undergrad total, what I walked away with, it was only about 40000
1: Okay, well, Not only, okay.
4: it's still a lot of money, but it could
1: have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when we're talking about the lump sum of two seventy, nobody's thinking only at this point. But uh, let's, let's talk about the economics a little bit. So you finish medical school in three years. And I would imagine that it's basically at the point that you're paying off the debt, that you're looking at the total and saying that, that it's 270. So there's probably been some interest that's been accumulating in this as well along the way. But you you don't just graduate medical school and start working. You apply for residencies. What was it like applying for a residency, having gotten your degree in a school in the Caribbean? Now, I, I was not in the medicine program, but I am aware that kind of my bias was if I did a school in the Caribbean, if, if I'd gone that route it would have been maybe more challenging or that was the fear. Were you worried about that as well? Or, you know, what were you hearing?
4: Oh, it was a huge worry for me. And with these schools, what they're really, their goal is I think to make a lot of primary care physicians and for smaller communities, you know, and that's really how they advertise. And so after the first semester that we had, histopathology and I saw like we had the skin section like I from that moment on I was like I know I'm going to be a dermatologist I also grew up with some dermatologic diseases so that's you know I had a lot of just personal experience and that kind of triggered it for me so when the guidance counselors at medical school were asking about what our future plans were you know looking towards residencies when I told them dermatology No joke. The dean of my medical school told me that I was an idiot, (laughs) that I should not even consider that, that I should be thankful for, like, any residency that would take me. That just spurred me to, like, try harder. I was like, you cannot tell me I can't do this. I will do whatever it takes. So... That's
3: amazing that the dean of the medical school had such low uh, impression of his own school that he didn't think he would have a chance. In, oh, yeah. Uh, they
4: didn't want to see one of their students fail or not get a job. I think, you know, they want to see their numbers that this many of their students matched into residency. I think he was too afraid that, like, I wouldn't match and it would mess up their numbers.
3: But <laughs> by being at the very top of your school and graduating number one in the class, well, that set you apart. And I think that's a good lesson, the fact that uh, uh, the school may not have a great name, but if you're the best student coming out of it, you've got a great shot. And obviously, you were able to match to a residency, right?
4: I was. I actually took an extra year after medical school, knowing that I had kind of a bigger hurdle to jump. And I did a year-long, I guess they called it a fellowship, but basically, I was a research associate for a dermatology department at Northwestern. And so there I was able to make connections and kind of get my foot in the door with people, work really hard for them. And then I got their letters of recommendation to apply to residency.
2: And Allison, that's actually what I was going to ask to double back to your original mentors who pushed you towards medicine in the first place. We are constantly talking about connections and building that legitimate and sincere network. Did they help you at any point along the way? Getting your residency or beyond, and also these doctors at Northwestern. Like, talk us through how building that network in a real, sincere, and legitimate way works.
4: Oh, they've helped me all along the way. I mean, they've written so many letters of recommendation for me, but also they were instrumental in getting me that fellowship in Northwestern. Because for one of them, he was the mentor to another dentist who ended up working at Northwestern. And so he contacted her because he had always been a mentor for her and said, hey, you know, I have this medical student. She really wants to go into dermatology. This woman actually had gone to dental school and then went back and went to medical school and then became a dermatologist with like a special interest in diseases of the oral mucosa. Anyway, so he was my connection to her, which got me in this Northwestern fellowship. And then when I worked really hard there on you know specific research projects, it was the dermatologist I worked with primarily who called the place where I ended up matching and saying, you have got, if you get this girl's application, you have got to take her as a resident. She's the hardest worker and you will not be disappointed.
2: That is truly amazing. Again, I sound like a broken record, but I really want everybody to go back and listen to that again and just say (laughs) wow, right? Like each segment individually, right? (laughs) Seriously, just replay the whole thing. Like, I mean, Alison, that's amazing. So it's this network that has followed you through your entire career. And it's just, it's these handful of people who you become close with and they have gone to bat for you every step of the way. And it's because you put in the extra effort and you're that hard worker. And that is just it's remarkable it's that's why you go the extra mile that's why we should all go the extra mile and creating these relationships and doing a good job I mean like that is just that is remarkable so I'd love to follow this up i'm I'm very interested specifically
1: in the timeline basically because this is a long path and it's if you play it right and you think it through obviously it's one that makes sense but I don't want to gloss over this. So you get your dermatology residency. I mean, that's incredible how you pulled that off. There were so many obstacles stacked against you. And in spite of all of it, you just absolutely nailed it, crushed it, right? Let's talk about that residency. So you graduate med school, that's four years or three years in your case. And then you do a residency. You How many years of residency is that?
4: Dermatology is four years and that includes one year of internal medicine. So your intern year and then three years of just dermatology.
1: And then after the residency, are you now working as an attending?
4: No, I decided to do another fellowship.
1: Wow. Okay. So play this out. So four years of med school, one year of your fellowship that really probably set you up to get the residency, four years of residency. Now you're done with the residency and you do a fellowship. Is that another one year fellowship? Yes. One year. Okay. And what age did you graduate?
4: Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to do some math on that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, From 28, you started medical school, three and a half years, and then you had the year fellowship. So now we're at four and a half, the four-year residency, and then a fellowship after that. That's about a 10-year commitment right there. So I'm thinking you were late 30s, probably pushing 38. Have you been out about four years now?
4: Yeah, so I did. I graduated residency in 2013. Yeah, so I was 37 at that time. And then I did the one-year fellowship after that. So I grad, finished that in 2014.
1: And all your student loans, are they just on deferment until you finish this final fellowship?
4: Oh, embarrassingly, yes, they were <laughs> all on for parents.
1: Yeah. And so when we talked about the $270,000, that is basically after they came out of deferment and you started repaying them, that was your your total lump sum?
4: Yes. Okay.
1: I think now we're basically set up to really dive into the meat of this story. Well, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because there's so much actionable content as Brad was referencing up to this point, but in terms of the financial equation, the math, that's where this really begins. And I guess we should start with the opportunity. So you're now practicing your chosen profession and you're being compensated accordingly. What were you making as a dermatologist?
4: So my very first job as a full attending was in an academic position in Boston, and my starting salary was 240 thousand.
1: But you didn't stay in Boston, right?
4: Right. I stayed there for two years.
1: And what inspired you to change locations and where did you go?
4: So I met a gentleman who lived in Tennessee and we started dating long distance. And when we decided to make it serious, we had to make the decision for him to move to Boston or for me to move to Tennessee, looking at all the numbers and knowing the struggles even that I had just make my finances meet at a good salary, but Boston is a very expensive city. I decided to make the move to Tennessee.
1: And did you take a pay decrease when you moved out of that high density population area?
4: So when I moved from Boston to Tennessee, I made about a $100,000 pay increase.
1: Increase. You made a $100,000 pay increase. Wow.
4: Yes, because I was going from academics to a semi-private hospital.
1: Okay. Now, this actually reminds me of something, Physician on Fire, that you've talked about, which is this reverse geo-arbitrage with regards to medical professions. And I think you have stated that what you see, the trend that you see, is that people make more in the less populated areas than they do on the coast.
3: It's true, and it's fairly unique to medicine because in many other professions, like finance and law, you make more money in the big city. But in medicine, and I think it mainly goes back to supply and demand, uh, you've got fewer doctors in rural areas and in the middle of the country. And so a lot of doctors want to be in Boston. There are a lot of them there, and they don't make as much money as we do in places like Minnesota and Tennessee and many places in between. So yeah, it's that geographic arbitrage that not only allows us to make more money, but also live in a lower cost of living area, such as Tennessee, Minnesota, South Dakota, Oklahoma,
2: et cetera. Allison, let's go back quickly to Boston. You have approximately $270,000 of debt. You're making about 250 K, but in a high cost of living area. What did your financial life look like at that point? Were you repaying the debt quickly? Did you have a savings rate? Are you maxing out your retirement plans? Talk us through where you were those first two years.
4: Yeah, I honestly feel like I was kind of failing financially those first few years because I had a good salary, but I felt very frozen. I was like holding on to my money so tight. I didn't know how to invest it. They had a 403B and 457 plan for retirement, and I was only contributing about 5%. Honestly, the consultant who talked to us from Fidelity, which is who their retirement accounts for through, she really had to even talk me into that. She's like, just start with 5%. I know it's hard to give your money up when you're just getting it, but you have to start somewhere. Thank goodness she did, but... I wish it would have been more. And then I was only paying the minimum payment on my student loans because I kept getting all this advice that's so common that my interest rates were low. I'm always going to have student debt that I should just use my money to invest you know, for higher interest than paying off this low interest rate student loans.
3: And being told that you're always going to have student loan debt. Now, it's just a defeatist attitude right there, right? Right. But yeah, so you made a different decision than since then, huh?
4: Yes. So I didn't start upping my student loan payments until I moved to Tennessee and I started getting these bonuses. I realized now my savings and checking account are getting enormous and I don't know what to do with it. So I went to a financial advisor at that point and started to get set straight.
2: So Allison, a financial advisor, what does he or she advise you to do? Like, was this a person that you feel lucky to have found in hindsight? Or was this, as we say, kind of like a typical financial advisor who's maybe looking up for them?
4: Yeah, I don't think he was as typical as some that I had spoken to during residency, right? They would have presentations where people would come to you and they were basically selling you products. And he was not like that. He was kind of like an invest in hold guy and he's pretty young, you know, and he seemed to have my best interest. Looking back, some of the advice he gave me, I probably would do differently now, but it was a starting point for me. And once he showed me how my money was growing and investments, that kind of started to perk my interest and made me realize that savings is fun. (laughs) It wasn't like I was just giving it all away to this retirement account that I couldn't really conceive of ever spending. you know it's hard to explain but for a long time I thought retirement is so far away I want to spend the money now. Why do I want to save it for this time when I can't even you know leave the house and and can't go enjoy life? And so he at least taught me this is the minimum I think you should save for your retirement and taught me about how investing works and also really encouraged me to pay off my student loans.
2: So you're here on a financial independence podcast and it's, it sounds like it's less than two years ago that you met this financial advisor. Did, did that light a spark of, Hey, maybe I can get over my limiting beliefs about money and take control of my own finances. Like, I'd love to hear about your financial education from that point forward.
4: Yeah, it did. So for the first year, I kind of let him run the show. And then, you know, I think it was the White Coat Investor, various podcasts, I started looking at this idea of handling it myself and maybe how I would do things differently. So I would keep this small amount of money just for myself to invest. And then I would let him do what he was going to. And then I kind of saw like trial and error, what I could do myself. And then I don't remember the exact moment, but I just decided I was going full force and I ordered a bunch of personal finance books and I just started reading like crazy and felt like I had to become expert before I could feel comfortable doing it, right? Like I was, it's just part of my nature, right? To study as much as I can to be prepared before I actually jump in. It's
3: like med school all over again, but with a whole different subject matter.
4: Yeah. Everyone's like, you can do this. You know, you can, you don't need a financial advisor or you can invest yourself. And it was something that I knew nothing about. And so I had to learn as much as I possibly could. And honestly, like you all had recommended Simple Path to Wealth by JL Collins And reading that book actually really set me at ease because all of a sudden I was like, this can be simple. I don't have to pick the best stocks or constantly be checking on everything. I can actually invest and still feel like it's simple. And that really was like, okay, now I can get rid of my financial advisor and do this myself.
1: Wow, the power of simplicity cannot be overstated. So, it was that book that allowed you to feel like you could take agency.
4: Yeah, I had read so many other books. And the first one, my very first financial podcast, was one called Be Wealthy and Smart. And it is this woman, and she was kind of inspiring because, you know, she is like really wise and just talks about investments. Well, the book that she recommended was How to Make Money in Stocks. And so, that was my first one, and it really overwhelmed me. I was like, I have to read these charts and Business Investors Daily was what she recommended the newspaper to read. And I really tried, but I felt so overwhelmed by it. I was like, I'm never going to get this. And then I just kept buying more and more books and they got to more of this simple approach. But when you all recommended A Simple Path to Wealth and I had listened to the stock series from J.L. Collins on your podcast, I read that book and I felt, oh, I'm finally going to get this. Like, I do not have to make it so complicated.
1: So the simple path to wealth is what got you off the sidelines. But just to be clear, you found the simple path to wealth through us. Am I understanding that we had some role in this decision to get out of the way of paralysis by analysis?
4: Absolutely. Yes. 100%.
1: (laughs) We'll take it. Okay. Let's go back to your story. So you're in Tennessee, you've just gotten a $100,000 pay raise, and you've kind of had this realization that I probably shouldn't just keep all of this in my checking account and assume that student loans are going to last forever. Is this kind of still where your salary is now, or have you continued to get raises from there?
4: I haven't continued to get a raise. In medicine, you often have like a base salary and then you can have a bonus structure based on your productivity. And so that's how I've gotten my raises. Over time, I've always kept my same base salary. They haven't changed that. But the more productive I am, the more I get these quarterly bonuses. And I also started getting into the side hustle. Last year, I also worked for a pharmaceutical company as a consultant It was the best case scenario. There was a really rare disease, which is what I did my fellowship in, and they just basically paid me to educate other dermatologists on this rare disease and the treatments. And so I got to travel around and talk to other dermatologists about something that I had spent a whole year of my life studying, and they paid me for it. Unfortunately, that job is over, but that was a really big booster for me last year in starting to pay down these loans. And then as my practice built in Chattanooga and I became more and more busy, these what they call RVU production bonuses kept coming in higher and higher. And that's where I was like, I really see the light at the end of the tunnel here. I see how I can make my income grow. I still want to continue to do side hustles and just like maximize my income and maximize my savings.
1: I'm almost afraid to ask. I mean, how much extra did you make through some of these side hustles and other mechanisms for compensation? Was that an extra forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars? What was your total last- compensation package last year?
4: Last year, my federal adjusted gross income was five hundred thirty thousand.
1: What? Making ten to fifteen dollars an hour, paycheck to paycheck in Boston, got a late start and then took an eleven-year path, landing in Chattanooga, Tennessee, making five hundred forty k.
2: That's insane. That's awesome. I'm, I'm blown away.
3: It's more than I've ever made.
2: <laughs> <laughs> POF, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the bonus structure, side hustles. Like how, how common are those for physicians? The
3: side hustle is becoming more and more common. There's a Facebook group that I'm involved with called Physician Side Gigs, and we've got 20,000 physician members there alone discussing all the different ways people can make money outside of their clinical day and night job. And I think I can see the reason it's the same reason that physicians are seeking financial independence. They get a bit frustrated and and stressed out by all of the uh, work we do as physicians. And I also see the compensation structure that Allison has with the production bonus and the more you work, the more money you make. And that's a double-edged sword, right? Because the work we're doing is something that is rather stressful and, and can make life difficult. That's what we're trying to escape from. But at the same time, the more we do it, the more money you can earn. So uh, I think Allison's probably dealing with that issue right now. You know, how much is enough, et cetera.
1: Allison, I'd love to get your input on that because you did mention the production bonus. Like, what sort of a time commitment is this? Is this a 20 hour a week
4: gig? No, it's definitely not 20 hours. So with these production bonuses, absolutely, he hit the nail on the head. That it incentivizes you to work more, see more patients, do more so that you make more money. But at some point there are sacrifices, right? Not only do I come home from work completely exhausted because of the number of patients that I saw that day, but I do feel like I'm spending less and less time with my patients, which also bothers me, right? I still want to give them the best care. And so I will spend as much time as I can with them, but that just means that I have longer days, that I'm there at the office later, finishing up my charts. And then I come home and I'm just completely wasted. And I only work four days per week which is amazing some people are probably listening thinking like what do you possibly have to complain about like I work Tuesday through Friday and I'm making a great salary but when I'm at work it is non-stop I start clinic at 7 30 in the morning I sometimes don't get home until 6 30 at night so I need that three-day weekend I'm totally exhausted and I can't go on with that forever. But now that I have this path in sight of financial independence, then I just think I'm just going to put my head down and work so hard for the next so many, you know, few years and meet my goal. But at the same time, I don't want to lose these next few years just because I have my head buried in work. So I've got to get back to a little bit more balance.
2: Allison, one of the key determinants to A happy and successful work career is autonomy. And I'm curious how autonomy factors into your current job. Do you have these like, and this is kind of tongue in cheek, but like corporate overlords, is this a big practice that you're working in where people are constantly pushing to see more patients hit X targets? How much of that comes from you internally? And how much of that comes from whoever owns this practice? Ultimately?
4: You know, it's a little bit of both. Of course, the hospital wants me to be more productive, but honestly, for the number of patients I see and the amount that I'm bringing in each month to the hospital, if I was in private practice, I would actually be taking home more, and I could have more control over how many patients that I see a day, what my schedule looks like, would I want to start later some days, earlier others, and how much time do I want to spend with each patient, I know that that would make me so much happier than having someone else dictate exactly how I practice.
2: Wow. The alarm bells are going off in my head. Are you thinking about moving to private practice? Is that something that's, that maybe is, Hey, once I've reached my phi number, this will be how I can practice medicine going forward. Have you thought about what your career arc looks like?
4: Yeah, I've thought about it in so many different ways and you know, one side, I think just you have a good job now, just keep going and then be done in five years. But I really like dermatology. I really like taking care of patients. And so I don't want to have to quit in five years, completely burnt out and not wanting to go back. So I've been contemplating private practice a lot lately. And as I mentioned to Physician on Fire, my email is I don't know how to calculate that into my goal for financial independence because I just got out of student loan debt and going into private practice means that I would be taking out more loans in order to start up the practice and there's a lot more unknown that I have to learn. I've always worked in hospitals where they take care of my malpractice insurance, disability insurance. They hire the staff. They pay my medical insurance. I mean, there's just so many factors, which I can learn. I'm smart enough to learn. It's just, you know, I have to find the time to do it. Ultimately, I know I'd be so much happier. My patients would be better taken care of even because I would make sure I had time for them. But I'm really scared of taking on debt and all that comes with starting a practice from scratch.
3: And you're starting from a net worth of maybe a little bit above zero now that you've been making money for a few years. But it is uh, comforting to have that half million dollar salary that you can rely on coming in consistently. So I can understand where you might want to continue doing what you're doing for a while, at least until you have a a nice base and some money saved up. But if you know you're going to be much happier working in a different way, then that should be something that you start to think about working towards. And I think there are a lot of good resources now, and it's easier than ever to uh, you know, branch out on your own because there are these online forums and communities with other physicians, other people ha- that have done what you're wanting to do. And I'm sure there are people that would be more than willing to help you.
2: So coming from my naive perspective of not knowing much about the medical field, Allison, are there ways to stay at the hospital? Like if you are concerned about how difficult this may be, and I'm sure that's just a fear of the unknown situation, but just hear me out. Are there ways to make your job at the hospital better, or is this just how it's set up structurally?
4: I think there certainly are ways that I can make my current practice less stressful. I could absolutely see less patients and I would just be working longer, but maybe I wouldn't leave the day so exhausted But I think being in a hospital practice or certainly when I was in academics, there's also always the red tape and the bureaucracy of like a greater system, right? I work for a hospital system. I have to ask their permission for everything. If I want to buy a new piece of equipment because I think it's good for my patients and I think it could be good financially, it takes a long time and a lot of fight to get that approved. Um, So it can be better but i do think when i get to make my own decisions then it's just going to be that much more rewarding
3: i recently uh, went to a part time schedule so i chose to start working less and earning less and it did take quite a bit of uh, really thinking through if i really wanted to do that you know we're uh, all of our career were so busy and and so driven to just you know do all that we can and uh, it wasn't the, the easiest uh, mental transition once i made that decision to go part time and actually started working that schedule i have not looked back and i uh, truly truly do love it and you also start to think about what is the marginal benefit of that additional dollar especially when you know you in particular are in that top income tax bracket and only keeping about half of what you earn uh, with those uh, you know those bonuses that you're getting so yeah, there's a lot to think through there. But I also made that decision after I reached financial independence, and and you're on the other end of uh, of that spectrum.
2: So Allison, you're in Tennessee. You're making a significant income. You kind of slipped in there that you paid off your student loans, which is amazing. I mean, congratulations! So congrats. Like, Thank you. <laughs> that's yeah, remarkable. I want to hear about that certainly. But but first, I just want to ask about about your fine number. What does your lifestyle look like? Have you calculated what your FI amount would be and at a $500,000 plus annual salary? How quickly could you get there based on just current facts?
4: Yeah, that FI number for me is ever changing. So when I first heard the calculation and I got spreadsheets out and looked at my monthly expenses, my annual expenses, I really saw this. How would I live on less than $100,000 a year? And so therefore, I have to save $2.5 million. That is going to take me so long. And then I really just kept chipping away at like, what can I remove? What are those things, just like you have always talk about, what are these things that I spend money on make me happy? And what am I just spending money on just to spend money on? And so every month, I cut something, trying to figure out right now, still what minimum amount I could live on, but not feel deprived every month that changes. And so I don't have an actual number right now.
1: You know, I was just but running a very simple calculation. I took your 540, which I don't know if that is sustainable based on what you were saying, but I'm sure it's you know upwards of 400, but based on $540,000 a year, you're looking at 161,000 in federal tax, leaving you based on that number with 378,000 and then I believe Chattanooga, Tennessee, they don't tax your income at the state level. Am I right about that? That's right. Which is amazing. That's a huge hack for you. It sounds like it would be reasonable to say that you're going to have based on your income last year, you're going to have at least a year to work with. And up to this point, that's been going to your debt. But even after you get rid of your debt, assuming that before you optimize your lifestyle, you're looking at about $100,000 a year, that leaves you with close to $250,000. That's a massive shovel. And I think it's very interesting because where we're at is this point where we say, do we keep our head down? And we just drill forward and we say how many years to hit the finish line. I mean, without the magic of compounding, you've gotten to a million dollars within the next four years. If you were going to not change anything about your working situation and you were just going to keep moving forward, how long do you think you could keep going?
4: I don't know. I am pretty stubborn once I like make a decision, but I don't know how happy I would be at the end of that. Four years from now, if I kept working as hard as I am now, or even harder, because I saw that end getting closer and closer, I don't know who I might be at the end of it all.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. You know, for many people, when you're talking about doing this earlier, we're talking about the magic of compounding. So I could very easily run a calculation for you that says $250,000 for four years what will that be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that sort of thing. But you're in this very interesting place where you're accumulating a massive amount of money in a very, very short period of time. So the brunt of the work, at least in the short term, is going to be done by your savings and it's going to be done with post-tax dollars. And that is so interesting because it indicates to us that for you specifically, Cutting your lifestyle will be more powerful than increasing your income for every dollar that you earn. And in addition to the 540 K that you're earning right now, you're going to be taxed at close to 30 to 40% after you add in all the different ways that it's going to come at you. Whereas if you can cut a dollar from your lifestyle, you're getting a hundred percent of the benefit. Not saying that this is a conversation to talk you down to $20,000 a year lifestyle, but there will be a balance here and that balance in many cases will dictate this choice especially if you're in the pursuit of happiness. and so like as you're looking at your budget you said you took the time to map it all out. what's the low hanging fruit that you're thinking about getting rid of?
4: my mortgages. and not just one but multiple mortgages. i have to get rid of those before i could even consider, you know, having a lower annual expense that is would be manageable, like a number that i could save for in the next 5 years.
3: Now, if you treat them like you treated your student loans, they'll be gone before you you know it. Right. Yeah. But tell us about the mortgages, plural, and, and why you have more than one.
4: Yeah. So up until I moved to Tennessee, I had never owned a home. Right. Because I had been a resident and a fellow and then living in Boston and Chicago and the down payment for, you know, a one bedroom apartment in Boston probably would have been, you know, one hundred and twenty two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. So I had always rented, you know, and then I moved to Tennessee and then now I have this other person that's involved and then he has a child. And so now we're like a family, which I did also didn't have before. And so I think I, you know, I have this huge increase in pay. I now have this instant family. Like I need to buy a big home. And I just felt like I could totally justify it because I was still spending like when you do that calculation, I was still am spending like less than 10% of my income on my monthly mortgage. And so I just I had a week to find a home on was on vacation from Boston here. I found a house that was under construction and just kind of bought that on a whim. Within a year, I realized I did not really like that home, but now Mm -hmm. I had this mortgage. And so what to do, you know, I could just stay there or I could, you know, look for a place that made me happier. So of course I decided to look for a place that would make me happier. I found another home and I wasn't able to sell my first home. So I had it on the market just for three months and I just saw myself paying this mortgage payment every month and we weren't living there. And and so I decided to just rent it out and see if the market got better for me at a later time. So now I have that rented out, which covers my mortgage, you know, covers my expenses, but I'm certainly not making any money on it. And then I have the home now where I currently live, which unfortunately um, was a more expensive house, but I'm so much happier here. Not because it's bigger or it's more fancy. It's just like there's more woods around me. Like I feel this peace at home. I have these really relaxing views. It's just more like speaks to me like I'm very happy when I come home. It still is like for my salary is a reasonable price for a mortgage. I can definitely afford it, but it certainly also is more house than I truly need. I was mm-hmm bit biased, right? Because I came from Boston where I might get a one-bedroom apartment for $800,000. Well, here in Tennessee, I could have a four-bedroom house with these amazing views and all these woods around me for a little over Mm $600,000. And so it just seemed like I was making a wise choice. But now I have this house that I love, but it is, you know, if I really want to push for financial independence early, I need to downsize. The third mortgage comes in that now I have this family and want these family experiences. I decided to buy a lake home. So, in Tennessee, there are lots of mountains and lakes, and we really spent a lot of time camping at these lakes before and had so many good memories building. So, I decided to buy a lake home with the goal also of renting it out when we weren't there, thinking this could be an investment property for me.
3: And how is that investment working out?
4: is really at this. So this is the second year I bought it in January of last year. So we've had it for two seasons. And the first year, it covered probably about half of my expenses when I rented it out. But we were able to enjoy it so much that that seemed reasonable. I thought this is great. I'm making a smart decision that I'm not just buying a second home that we go to two weeks of the year and the rest of the time it sits empty. Like at least I'm wise enough to rent it out. Well, so this year I'm probably pretty much going to break even. So oh. the amount of time that I rent it out is going to pay for what all my expenses are. So again, I'm not making money at this point. It might happen in the future, but at least I'm, I'm breaking even on that.
3: And you have a place you can use. And, and I can't really judge you for wanting that lake home because guess where I'm recording from right now? <laughs> it's, our, it's our cabin.
1: Yeah. yeah physician on fire. Try not to get behind on those mortgages though.
3: Yeah. See, we own everything straight up with cash. Uh, and so I don't have to worry too much about that. But three mortgages, Allison, uh, do you have any plans to get rid of at least one of those by either paying it down or perhaps selling that first home?
4: Yes, I would definitely love to sell that first home. Um, It's leased out for another year, actually, to another physician who moved to Chattanooga and wasn't sure he was right after fellowship, wasn't sure he was ready to buy. He did the smart thing, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) He did. He is smart. And I'm so glad because I feel like he's such a good tenant and reliable who's in my, if I have to rent out my home, it couldn't be a better situation. That once they're done, I'm going to put it back on the market again, absolutely, and get rid of that. Not because I'm losing money on it, but just because I want that weight off my shoulders. I don't think that I'm going to try to pay off my current home because I think I know deep down that I really probably need to downsize. But I just moved in here to this house one year ago. So again, if I turn right around and sell it, I'm going to lose so much money in all those realtor fees and you know everything that oh, comes yeah. along with selling a home. I'm going to think it over for the next year. I really did try to do a calculation of like how much would I lose if I sold it a year after buying it versus That's how much lot. would I save moving to a place that maybe had a lower mortgage, but you know, I, it just didn't bounce. I thought it just seemed better for me to stay here. And then with the lake house, if it starts actually making me money, then I will keep it as an investment property. But if at any point it becomes more headache than it is joy, then I will sell that house as well.
2: Sure. Alison, your current house, the, the one that you're contemplating or, or you realize you need to downsize. You talked about the things that make you happy about that house. I guess the woods and, and some other items. Have you come up with a list of, of what those things are? And then try to find something comparable in Chattanooga that, that would be much less than that 600
4: I have thought about that, I have not been able to find another home that is significantly less expensive that would house all of these things that make me happy. Not to say that it's not out there, but the market in Chattanooga is pretty hot right now. So good houses are only going up in price and they're just kind of a less available houses out there. So the market's pretty tight.
2: Gotcha. And yeah, just as far as selling the house, I know it feels awful when you incur those fees, the realtor fees, et cetera, but on some levels it's a sunk cost. Hey, I made this decision. I realize I need to unwind it and these are the fees. So if you're going to downsize, obviously the mortgage will be much less per month. The overall debt burden that you need to pay off and therefore your fine number will be much lower. And just the sheer simplicity of your life, it just sounds like a win to me. And obviously there is that break-even point, even though you have to incur these fees, like you will eventually reach that break-even point. So I would argue, and, and I'd be curious to hear what Jonathan and POF have to say about this, I would argue, don't worry about, oh, it's so much. I just bought it a year ago. Just make the decision that works for your life. Yeah. And in my mind simplicity is
1: a guiding light for me as well. I love a simple balance sheet. I loved, and, and I would even go so far, I would be thinking about it in terms of your five number. And I would also be thinking of it in terms of how that the freedom that that will afford you with regards to your working decision. I just ran it a couple different ways. So, you know, depending on the cost of your life. And you got to keep in mind, I think about my fine number as a very flexible thing. What I pick at one point may not be what it is a year or two from now, but as you get closer to any number that you settle on, the power is continually moving to your side of the court. So if you were to focus on this job that you have right now, that is kind of slowly wearing you into the ground. If you were to even do that for one to two years, you know, you said, oh, it'd be great if I could do it for eight years, but you only make it one or two years. As long as you're taking the time that you've put in and using that to buy your freedom, I don't think you'll look back and regret it. And so if your fine number, if you need $112,000 a year in order to basically keep the lights on because you have all these properties in different places and you're bleeding subscriptions and everything else, your fine number would be $2.8 million. That would get you to a point where you could probably sustain that. Conversely, if you were able to reduce some of this bloat and get it down to maybe 68,000, you only need 1.7 million and if you were able to go a little bit more extreme and get it down to 48,000 you would only need 1.2 million now that's fine that's a great as a starting place but what's really cool about this is let's say you get to the point in time where you have been able to save up million, which due to the magic of compound interest, if you're able to put aside $250,000 per year, not too many people can say that, but it is viable in your case. If you could put aside $250,000 a year for four years and you were able to get roughly an 8% rate of return, which I think at least is in the realm of reason, that's going to get you to $1.2 million. You, in In theory, you know, this is all projections, would be able to support a $48,000 a year lifestyle for the rest of time. Now, if you made the decision that, hey, that's not quite comfortable, we prefer to spend a little bit more. How powerful is it still that regardless of what financial choices you make from here on out, as long as you let that beast alone, you have this third income earner in the household that regardless of what you're doing, regardless of your productivity bonuses that you may or may not earn is still earning for you that 48 K a year. That is the power of accumulating assets instead of stuff. To me, I just, I love those numbers as a framework because it guides my investing decisions.
3: Those are good numbers to think about, you know, the 118,000, you know, back when we had a mortgage or two um, and student loans, I probably had expenses that were were not that far from that. Now that we're debt free in all ways, yeah, we're spending 60 some thousand dollars a year. Now, once I have to pay my own health insurance when I'm retired, it it might be closer to 80,000 a year, but we live uh, quite well on that, uh, that kind of a budget, I believe. And I think Allison certainly could too especially in
2: middle America. All right. So POF, I want to throw this over to you now, because I know you do case studies on your website, and I do. that's really why we have you here on the podcast, to to really help Allison on a significant granular level of like how you would advise a fellow physician. I'd love to hear how you would talk through this on one of your case studies.
3: Sure. Well, you know, we're kind of coming at this from the perspective of, okay, she's been shoveling money at the student loans. Those are gone. We're starting kind of from scratch and where do you go with investing from here and so i just like to think about the different buckets that can be filled i know she has access to a 403b so that's eighteen thousand five hundred dollars a year she can put into that and i would recommend tax deferred traditional contributions to take that uh, tax deduction and she also has a 457b which is similar in a number of ways to the 403b or 401k it is maybe at a little bit of risk the hospital would fail, which is pretty rare but can happen. So I would definitely still contribute to the non-governmental 457B unless the hospital is known to be on shaky ground, which I don't believe is the case. Correct, Allison? Correct. And are you contributing to both of those accounts now?
4: I am currently maxing out both of those.
3: Perfect. So that's $37,000 a year that you can put away and, and not pay taxes on that money. Uh, do you have access to... A health savings account through your employer?
4: Unfortunately, I do not. We only have a flexible spending account.
3: Okay, so that's a bit different. Uh, The flex savings account needs to be used up every year. You decide how much money you put in and and you have to spend it on medical expenses. Whereas an HSA is a much more flexible account that you can leave money in it for decades. And when you put money in, it is a tax deduction if you take money out for a health related expenditure and you don't pay taxes on it, so it's triple tax free. So if you did have access to an HSA, I would definitely be maxing that out too. Doesn't sound like that's gonna be the case for you, at least not in this job. And then we can talk about other accounts and you've got income that that you're going to obviously have money left over after putting that 37,000 away. So a Roth IRA is something that you cannot directly contribute to you can do the backdoor Roth and that's $5,500 for you. If you were married, it would be another $5,500 for your spouse as well. And that's money that you make a non-deductible IRA contribution and then convert that money to Roth. And it has been blessed as legal and good. And I've got a a step-by-step process if you happen to be with Vanguard on how to do that uh, in a post on my site. So now we're up to 42500 and you've got about another $200,000 to invest, I believe, right?
4: I think so. Give or
3: take. You know? mm-hmm. So that's where you just start buying mutual funds, ETFs, even individual stocks if you're into that. But it doesn't sound like you are. We're talking about simplicity today. It's a taxable brokerage account. And just a simple account that you set up through your favorite broker. And do you have a taxable brokerage account at this point?
4: I do. I have um, one through Vanguard.
3: Perfect. Same here. So every month you've got maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars that you can be putting into your, uh, you know, your VT sacs, right? That's what we love to talk about here. And of course, you want to also kind of look at your overall portfolio and bring it together so you understand what you have in your different accounts and how they all work together as one portfolio. And that's something we can certainly take offline too, um, and get you some help there. I have a spreadsheet that helps, you know, especially if you're working with a simple three fund or similar portfolio. That will uh, take the money that you have in all the different accounts, and then give you your overall allocation. And
2: yeah, so PF Allison obviously has a significant amount of real estate with the three different homes, and and who knows ultimately how many that will end up being. But do you personally invest? most of your net worth in mutual funds and etfs or do you have real estate that you invest in and what do you counsel uh allison considering so me personally
3: i've uh, owned a fair amount of real estate not so much as an investor but uh, much like allison by moving from place to place and not buying the perfect home and buying another one and so <laughs> on. uh, we had as many as five properties for a very brief period of time and and then we were down to two, and now we have three. We have the cabin where I'm at right now, our primary home in Minnesota. And then we bought some uh, additional lakefront property, which ultimately, in a, within a couple of years, will probably be our only property. As far as investments, oh, and I should say, because we're going to build on that property and make that our forever home and probably have an Airbnb half to it. So that's exciting, but this is not about me. This is about Allison today. Investments, I do some REIT uh, index fund with Vanguard, and I have a handful of the crowdfunded real estate investments. I've tried five different platforms and, and have been investing in, the, in those just a little bit to see how that goes. I think for Allison, you know, she's just getting started building that net worth. If she can get down to two properties, that would probably be better than three. I do like real estate investing as a portion of the portfolio. For me, it's about 10%.
1: What's amazing about the numbers that we were just running with that massive shovel that she has, even at the more inflated lifestyle that we're, we're looking at before kind of optimizing it at the margins, potentially cutting out property and things that aren't adding value Like I was running numbers for four years and for eight years, I didn't even get to 10 years because at that level of savings, it basically becomes unnecessary. That is incredible. Since your life may not dramatically change in terms of your working environment over the course of this year and next year, even that small amount of progress that being able to leverage that income to buy your freedom as you slowly start tapering down, making less money, but making less money based on optimizing your life, right? Making the life choice. I think it's going to largely become unnecessary. And I think as you get closer to your five finish line, you'll realize that you probably still have a passion for this work. You probably really, really enjoy this. I mean, there was something in you that gave you that drive to pursue this. When you had so many obstacles stacked against you, I suspect that you'll be working in some shape or form, at least for the next 10 years. And so then it's really just, what do I want to do? What portion of this job brings value? And the numbers are working for you almost any way you run them. I mean, this is basically, this is virtually a guaranteed maximum 10 year path to financial independence. And even after you leave your job, even after you retire, there's still going to be options for you to work in some capacity if you want to, right?
4: Yeah, Absolutely. Like we mentioned earlier, I could go part-time, but some things I've been tossing around in my head is I really do like what I do, but I loved consulting. So I loved the part of like teaching other dermatologists about things or continuing to educate, but on my own time and getting to travel around to do that. And there's something else we can do in medicine called locums tenums, where basically you're kind of like the fill-in doctor So for instance, if a woman physician is going out for three months on maternity leave, I could just travel to where her practice is, see her patients for her for three months, take good care of them, and then she would come step right back in. And then, you know, depending on how much I was able to make from that, I might be able to work free or pursue other passions for the remainder of the year. And as long as I keep my skills up, I could do that kind of as almost like an as needed or PRN basis.
3: Yeah, that's a pretty cool way to work, and that's all I did for two years out of residency was locum tenens work. And I've also done some in between jobs, and even on my weeks off uh, while I was working, when I was kind of in your shoes and wanting to, you know, make as much income as I could to, you know, eventually reach financial independence. So, yeah, I, I do encourage you to look into that.
1: And it strikes me that initial email that I got from you was someone that just felt stuck. It was like, can I do this? And what comes to my mind after we look at your story is you have so many options. It's just what do you want to do?
4: Yeah, exactly. I, and I think a lot of physicians feel really stuck like that, right? Because we're just in this grind of like undergrad, medical school, residency, and you are feel so buried. And then I think it's been mentioned in previous podcasts, but it really becomes part of your identity that you're a physician. We see our mentors and older physicians working until they are 70, 75. There's a current dermatologist in my area who's almost 80. And they just keep killing it. And I don't know how they are still taking good care of their patients and taking good care of themselves. But I want other physicians to know that there are options because you have to enjoy your life and enjoy your job and make sure that you know that there are all these different ways that you can do that options to make sure that you're happy.
1: Thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us.
4: Thank you so much for having me. And that gives me so much hope because really when I sent that email, like, is it too late for me? You know, of course, I'm hearing all these stories of people reaching financial independence in their 30s and 40s, and I'm already 42. And I had all of that debt to pay off. I just thought, well, maybe by the time I reach this number, I'll already be at retirement age. Traditionally, I just wasn't sure. And then I start as I started to crunch the numbers, I just really wasn't sure Is it five years for me? Is it 10 years for me? And I guess that just all depends on how I'm optimizing.
2: Allison, you said, I wondered if it was too late. Of course, with your income, it is not too late, but the big takeaway for the audience is it's not too late for anybody. You can make decisions that will make your life so much better just by being more intentional, more optimized and following this path to five. It might take somebody five years like you. 10 years, 15 years, but, but you can get there. And I think that's the real important message that I want everybody to take away is it's just about taking action. Like you, your entire story is working hard and overcoming limiting beliefs. Those are my big takeaways from you. And I hope everyone in the audience really, really clues into that because everyone has limiting beliefs. I do, you do, we all do, and we need to overcome them and just take action and our lives will be so much better today tomorrow and every tomorrow thereafter and it's it's really really important now on most shows that would be the end of the
1: episode but on this podcast allison we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat are you ready
0: for this
4: i think i'm ready
0: in a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free Welcome to the Choose F.I. hot seat.
2: All right, Allison, question number one, your favorite blog.
4: So I have to admit, I'm not a big blog reader. I've always followed many, but for some reason, I really have this issue with reading articles online. There's something about reading on a screen that just does not work with my brain. So I get the little tidbits from it, but I listen to podcasts and I read books and get much more from that.
1: All right. Your favorite podcast.
4: Okay, of course it's going to be ChooseFI. For the win. <laughs> of course, you guys have changed the way that I've just looked at my financial life and I love that it's crowdsourcing and so we get all these experts from every from everywhere, all walks of life but also even with the the feedback from the audience like it just makes it seem so much more approachable and it makes me excited like every time there's a new episode.
3: If you were a blog reader, can you tell everyone what your favorite blog would be? <laughs> yeah. No pressure. So
4: <laughs> let's see. Let me think about it. I mean, because there are so many that I look at. Of course, Mr. Money, Mustache, and Physician on Fire. That's BFF. Yeah, so. <laughs>
3: okay, you can stop there. <laughs> <laughs>
4: White <laughs>
0: Code Investor. Yeah, so <laughs> yes.
1: <a> <laughs> I was, and we're going to be putting a link. We've mentioned actually a bunch of articles in this show and physician on fire has written so much amazing content that is all going to be linked in the show notes for today's episode. So if you heard anything there and you're like, wow, that would be really useful. Definitely go check out the show notes. And we're going to link to all of physician on fire's content. Now, mm-hmm. Allison, I have a question for you, and this is question number two. Your favorite article of all time. Now, I realize in the context of podcast, that is slightly, that's a little bit of a tweak, but is there a particular episode that really resonated with you?
4: I don't have a great answer for that, but I did want to say, you know, for me, like it is more with books that inspire me than particular articles. I found inspiration in all the articles that I read, but a book that I read recently is called Grit by Angela Duckworth. I think that just resonated with me because of all this that we were talking about of just like not being the brightest or the most talented naturally, but just working harder in order to get to the place where you want to be.
3: And Allison, your favorite life hack.
4: Yeah so like everyone always answers travel rewards, which I used to think I was an expert in until I met until I met you all and like uh, realized how much more you can do with it. So I'm gonna change that up and say inexpensive date nights. When we used to go on date nights, it always was to a nice restaurant or to go out and actually spend money. And now that we're thinking about to Pastify, we love to find hacks like wine tastings, our favorite liquor store has these amazing wine tastings that are absolutely free every Friday night. And so at the end of the week, we will go there, have a few glasses of wine through the wine tasting. We might even hit another wine tasting and then we'll hit an inexpensive restaurant or come home and make dinner and watch a movie. And I just feel like there's no need to spend a lot of money just because you're hanging out with the one you love on a date night. You can definitely hack that.
1: Richmond has a lot of things. I don't think we have free wine tastings. That's awesome.
3: I have free beer here in uh, where <laughs> our, our lake cabin as I own 4% of the brewery. <laughs> and whenever we go in there, it's free beer and popcorn. You negotiated yeah, a really strong deal so there.
4: Makes me so happy. Yes, yeah. indeed. It makes, it makes me so happy to do something fun and not spend a dime.
1: All right. Question mm-hmm. number four your biggest financial mistake?
4: Oh, my gosh. Definitely, it's kind of two part buying that first home without really thinking it through and making sure it was exactly what I wanted. But in that first home, I love to cook and I love to have dinner parties. And so I thought when I finally made it and I had my big job, I would buy a 48-inch Wolf range, which is like the dream range for anyone who likes to cook. That thing with the hood cost me $15,000 that I paid cash for. And then I got, I moved out of that house a year later and that range is still there and I can no longer use it. That was definitely my biggest mistake financially.
1: I was not expecting that. (laughs)
4: The lifestyle creep like got me was like, I can afford this thing that I've always oohed and awed over. And, you know, I didn't even really need that, but I was, you know, I bought a new construction home and got to do all the finishes and I purchased that range. And then I put it in a house that I was not staying in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I make a mean
2: hamburger on my stovetop.
1: (laughs) Slightly less expensive.
2: All right Allison, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self
4: I would certainly start earlier with a plan and would not have been so ignorant to just let what every decision you make about your finances, you know what kind of effect that has on you, but also to never be afraid of change you know I think that I've gotten so many places in life and had so many great experiences because I'm truly not afraid of like that unknown and, and to change and see what happens. So I would have given that advice to myself, although I think that it's truly like ingrained in me, but I definitely just would have started earlier with my like overall financial plan and educating myself about finances.
1: And we do have a bonus question for you. So we've spent a lot of this episode actually talking about winding down the lifestyle creep and optimizing your finances. But this last question is tailored towards a purchase. Can you tell us about a purchase that you made over the past 12 months that's brought the most value to your life?
4: One purchase that I've been very excited about is really inexpensive, which also makes me happy. I was listening to a podcast. There's one called The Hippocratic Hustle where this woman physician just meets with other women physicians about their side hustles and their businesses. So I learned about this deodorant. I know that sounds silly, but it was developed by this physician and has completely become a passion of her life. And so I actually bought it thinking I just wanted to support her. And now it's just a product that like I love so much and I recommend to all of my patients. And so it's called Lume. Um, it might not make much sense of that being my favorite purchase, but it's something that I'm just really happy about that. I love it. And I'm supporting another woman physician who is stepping out on her own with her side hustle and becoming a success.
1: Ah, uh, Lume deodorant recommended by one out of one dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> it was a small sample study.
3: <laughs>
4: I know that sounds so silly, but when I think about like now I'm really careful about every dollar I spend. And so it seemed like that was just a luxury, but It actually ends up saving you money because you use less of it.
1: Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast.
4: Oh my gosh. You guys are honestly, I was like so nervous about this because I look at you all kind of like the rock stars in my like financial world and to get the opportunity to come on this podcast and talk to you is really like a kid getting to meet their favorite superhero. Like I'm just really thankful.
1: Well, we are thankful and frankly, we are inspired. To our audience, if you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episode up to this point, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to choosefi.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to chooseFI.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI. And right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.
0: You've been listening to Choose F.I. Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.